The first reading from today comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through chapter 9, verses 8. Now listen for the word of God. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Syracuse, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of those prophets. But he asked them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed, and after three days, raise again, be raised again. He said this all quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your minds not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And for those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they gain in return for their life? For those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory with his Father and with the holy angels. And he said this to them, Truly, I tell you, there are some that are standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come to power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them out to a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them and his clothes became a dazzling white such that no one could bleach them and there appeared Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus Peter said to Jesus rabbi it is good for us to be here let us make three dwelling places one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then the cloud overshadowed them, and the cloud 
And from the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one but only Jesus. This ends this reading. The second reading from today will come from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which is not in your bulletin. I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of your calling, which you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering and forbearance of one another in love, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and be bold, bound of peace. Therefore, there is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is also the word of the Lord. May it be good news to us. Today, we celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. It's one of those minor, if you will, holidays. In the calendar of the liturgical calendar, This is a story that takes that second part of the, meet, the reading from Mark today, where Jesus goes to the high mountain, and they have this heavenly light show, and a voice comes down from that and says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. It is in that moment where we get probably the clearest confession of who Jesus is as the Messiah. <coughs> and yet, it's also interesting the challenge of confession in this story, or these two stories. The argument I want to lay before you today is a simple one. There is a blessing of a confession of a simple confession, yet we need forbearance so that we can maintain relationship in the midst of the differences of our belief that we work on the challenges that we have in ministry. What does this mean? I want to look at Mark's lesson, or at least that first part of it. It's interesting to me. There's like a real interesting humor that's a part of that first part of the text that I don't think we often get. And for a moment, I want to kind of take the story out of context to kind of demonstrate what's going on. 
So let's, instead of imagining Jesus Christ back 2,000 years, let's imagine he's running for president of the United States. And he's on, you know, his campaign tour, right? And maybe he's just gotten out of Nevada, and they're going on to South Carolina, and they're in the bus, right? And so in this conference meeting, in this, you know, the conference call that they're having on the bus, he asked probably a common question that's asked in many campaign meetings. Well, what do the people think of me? What is my message getting out there? Is my message getting out there? So I can hear on the other end of that conference call, you know, the campaign consultant coming on and saying, well, sir, we have done your research, we have done these focus groups, we've gone out into the community and we talked to people about who they think you are. And some think you're Elijah, you know, those are the millennial. Some think you're a prophet, those are the baby boomers. And then some think you're just a really good teacher, those of the non-denominational <laughs> type. Okay. But then, who do you say I am, he replies. And Peter, being campaign manager, steps right up and says, you're the next president of the United States. And Jesus looks him dead in the eye and says, I don't want anyone talking about it. Wait a minute, Jesus. You have a big poster on the back says, Jesus 2020, the hope for us all. And you don't want us to talk about this? This is a problem. Don't you understand what you're supposed to be doing here? And just as Peter's trying to cut off the telephone, because if, an, if, a, if a, um, a news person gets a hold of this, this campaign is shot. I mean, let's be honest. But before he can, Jesus goes on and says, you know what? I'm going to lose. And I'm not just going to lose this primary. I'm going to lose the next primary and the next primary. And to Super Tuesday, we're gone. We're done. And it's going to get so bad that people are going to get trumped up charges on me that I am um, a traitor to this country. And there I will be brought up on trumped up charges of treason. And they will kill me. Okay, now... Peter is grasping for that, pulling the, 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 the landline out of the, the bus, trying to say, stop! Jesus once again looks at Peter and says, look, if you're ashamed of me now, when I come in my glory, I will be ashamed of you. You see the paradoxical questions that this text pose. Can I have the next slide? Jesus asked the question, who do they say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. 
But yet, at the same point, what Simon Peter was expecting in that answer was not what Jesus was offering. Next slide. But what does it mean that you are the son of the living God? Now, this is an interesting question. While, next slide. The point here is we have this image. Actually, I'm now looking at it right now, <laughs> over there. And there's like this weird Waldo nature of this image of where it is in a church, because in every church I have ever been in, you will find a picture of Jesus looking like this, right? And that portrays a certain nature of who Jesus was, whether that is historically accurate or not, may be up for question. But there's a purpose for that image. It represents something to us. The next slide. Yet that's not the only interest in that's not the only image we have. That's not the only model of what we understand Jesus as. We can understand Jesus as the perfect icon through which we see God, the next one. We can see Jesus as the superhero, the superman, the person who rights the wrongs in the world, the person who stands apart and beyond. Next one. We can see Jesus as the engineer or the architect of all creation, taking from John in the first part of John in the chapter about light, life. <coughs> we can see Jesus as our buddy, the friend who is there when nobody else is, the friend that cares for us in our weakness, in our, our brokenness. Next. But we can also see Jesus as the protector of the homeland or the protector of the family and in the wider way, the protector of the homeland. Notice how that pulls some people into and some people out of. These all are different understandings of who Jesus is, and they all do specific purposes. Next one. Understanding those multifaceted images is a part of what we call Christology, which is a part of Christian theology exploring the person and nature and the role of Jesus Christ. The question is, what are we to make of all these different perspectives? Now, here's the point I want to make. I have an insight about this. I've studied a lot of the text. I have read multiple terms on this. And I think this question is summarized in a great work of cinematography, a great film in our Western canon about what is the nature of words. 
this, there is this wonderful piece of both a written book and a film that explains the challenge of Christi Christology. You want to know that one piece of film, that one piece that explains it all, if you will. Next. Next. The Princess Bride movie. Now, before everyone laughs me off the stage, please bear with me on this. Next one. There's a scene called The Cliffs of Insanity where the princess is captured by three would-be um, captors and they're being chased by this masked man who ultimately would become the hero. And they make a de decisive decision to climb the Cliffs of Insanity believing that no one in their right mind would follow them. So they climb up the cliffs of insanity. There's a rope. They cut the rope. The masked man is following him, holding onto the rope. They expect him to fall, right? He's holding onto the rope, fall. They look over, and one of them, Vecini, says, he didn't fall, inconceivable. To which Indigo says, you keep on using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> this line explains a lot about the challenge that we have as a Christian faith. When we understand how we understand who Christ is, because we use this word in many different ways. Next line. This works for two reasons. First, the inconceivable nature of Jesus Christ and the misunderstanding of the meanings. The inconceivable nature of Christ. Christ is first, next one. Christ is first totally God and totally human. And that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't compute in a lot of our understandings. <coughs> but yet, it is fully Jesus Christ. Excellent. Second of all, misunderstanding of, of meanings. And I'll give you another demonstration of this idea. As you all see, this is my backpack. It's what I call my um, football in legend of back in the day and maybe even today where um, the, wherever the president goes you have nuclear codes and they're in the football. So this is pretty much my life. And wherever I go, this goes with me. Right? When we have this question about you use the word in a way that I do not think it means what you think it means. What I think is when we define words, it's kind of like we're packing words with ideas. And a lot of times in the Christian faith, we have this tendency to pack a lot into the words that it becomes hard to use them in a way that makes sense. Okay, Just like 
this might surprise you, but I can get three weeks of wear into maybe pushing it, two to three weeks of stuff into this backpack, okay? And I was reminded of this because as I was traveling back from the funeral, we were getting in the plane and this very nice, um, probably a little bit older than me, so we'll call her young, um, this nice woman got alongside of me and sat and the way the, the chairs were, were you're, not, you're crammed together, even though we were in first class for some reason. But there's like this, here's where the chair is, and the support for the chair is here. So you lose this part of the, the thing. So I'm trying to jam this in while making sure we have a clear pathway. And I'm getting frustrated with it. And I asked the flight attendant, she says, well, just turn it, it'll be fine. So I did. And the, the nice exec sits alongside of me with her Dell products and all her Dell things. And she just puts her thing in her bag. She looks at me and she says, wow, I wish I could travel so light as you are. Now, let me tell you something. If she had seen me like, like eight hours before, she would not have had any concept that I travel like. But I said, well, it, looks can be deceiving. But then she responds to, well, you know what? I always feel like I need my hair dryer. Right? And, you know, I don't want to go down that road, but I thought about it. What we pack matters. And for some people, hair dryers are a big thing. For some people, makeup is a big thing. If you are a um, makeup artist, yeah, makeup is a big thing. That's what you do. If you're a pastor, it's books. Somehow, I don't get that many books into the bag, but they are there. <laughs> the point, again, is but how we pack the what our travel is matters. In the way we define things, we get different perspectives. Now, there's one way of looking at packing a bag or, or defining something that everyone has to pack the bag this way. Right? Everyone has to agree on it. Everyone has to have these five things in every bag, whatever they are. But what I've come to realize as I've struggled living with this thing is that what I may take to come to see you guys is not the same thing that I'm going to need in like if I need to be out of the house in 48 hours on a plane to see my in-laws. And learning how to deal with different ways of packing is a part of traveling together. It's a type of forbearance, I would argue. In religion news service, there was an um, article put out by Tom Elick. Go to the next one. In it, he said, we would say in the name of Jesus might mean different things by the name, but at the center, he is the reason we exist. 
allowing ample room for our diversity, we would say what we mean by faith in God, not the right we are or how wrong others are, but an I message. Here's why I believe in God. In another article, um, Holy Forbearance and Witness Time, James Calvin Davis wrote in The Outlook, which is a Presbyterian um, publication. He talks about this concept of forbearance. And he states, likely requires a commitment to faithfulness in maintaining relationships and trust <laughs> while we work with one another across theological differences and more fundamentally trusting in God to reveal God's truth in God's time. Just skip to the next one. The point here, and I'll go on, he goes on a little bit, but the point here is that the way we build forbearance, the way we live with one another, is that we come with our different packed suitcases. And we share with one another what those differences are. And we learn to trust one another in that difference. Can I have the next slide? Responses in forbearance. At the core of it, I think it comes back to this question. I love God and Jesus Christ. I think you do too. Seeing, let's see, seeing this, let's see how far that gets us. Which is to say, look, you may define things differently than I, but I trust we are on this journey together. So let's see how far we can get with it. Next slide. Seeing forbearance is an opportunity an opportunity to clear up misconceptions. This is important. If certain people pack a um, hair dryer, I make assumptions about that type of person, right? <laughs> if I pack a lot of books, people think assumptions about me. Some of those may be merited, some may not, not, may not. But learning to understand why people pack what they pack and why that's important for them determines a lot of how we see people and how we understand what they're doing. That's important to not just assume that all people who pack a um, hair dryer are all the same type of person or the person who packs a lot of books is not always going to be the same person. Clearly communicating the truths and values that we have. Last one. But here's the important thing. Maintaining the relationship in the midst of the journey, in the midst of the travel, that's what's important. Because as much as we want to tell everyone else to pack the bag like we pack it, the reality is that those arguments really don't go very far. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when you come to the end, what matters is how you packed your own bag. This is why I think that. Because you learn what worked for you and what didn't. When I started packing this, this bag, 
I thought that I needed a laptop on every trip I took. That's one reason I bought it. But now I've come to realize I don't need that. And that lightens my load because I made that choice. Learning to live with other people's choices is also important. And learning to be with other people. And the last story I want to tell, which is one that will not be the last story in the next time I preach the sermon, because the next time I'm going to talk about you guys and how you all in your diversity can represent something we can hold on to as we walk along that journey. But today, this is the last story. When I was in seminary, I was a chaplain <laughs> in an internship in a Catholic hospital. And like all kind of Catholic hospitals, they had mass. They had it on, I think it was Thursday. And so we, as our dutiful little internship group, would go down to mass. And there were two Protestants. I was one, and there was another Lutheran. And we would sit there, and we'd go through mass, and we'd have that time of worship together. And then we would all in our little good little form, line up and go up and have mass. And of course, because I was a Protestant and because the priest knew who I was, because he had seen me like a couple hours ago, he, would, he could not serve me the elements because I'm not Catholic. So he would bless me and we would move along and, and then we would go down and get the only kind of perk as being a chaplain was as an intern, which was we got a free meal. So we would go down to the cafeteria, we'd all file into our line, get our meal, and then we would go up to the chaplain's office. And around that table, that business table, we shared the stories of the people that we had encountered <laughs> in our ministry, the people we had served, and the people who have served us. <laughs> And it was in that where I would argue communion took place. Yes, I understand about the Catholic nature of the Eucharist and whatever, but it was in that community, in the midst of our forebearance of one of us, in the midst of the struggles, that we bear witness, and I would argue were transfigured into being the kingdom of God. And I pray that for you today. As we go through this Lenten journey, may we learn to live with one another in a way that is genuine to who we are and to whose we are. May it be so for us. Amen, amen, amen.